Another thing that does not make sense to me, and this, this might go back um, to a losing football record in high school, is um, you know, I always wanted to grow up and win the state championship. And now as I watch football, I see people win the Super Bowl. And when you win the Super Bowl, you get a big, fat ring full of diamonds. But here's what I didn't know until recently is if you are on a team that celebrates that victory, that is the team that is victorious, if you are on that team, if you are, I feel like, 50 feet near that team, if you are a player on the field or if you are third string water boy, everybody around that team is getting a ring. Everyone benefits from that victory. Now, there's something inside of me that thinks, man, like, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. What about like the guys on the field? What about these offensive, defensive linemen? I feel like maybe they should get two rings. They're blocking people that are twice as big as everybody else. What about the quarterback? Like all these guys, they are putting in the work, and there are clearly people that are a part of the organization that have just done nothing. I'm just talking about like they show up to work, and they get a paycheck, and they have just done absolutely nothing for this team to win the Super Bowl. Maybe they work in social media department. Maybe they work as the water boy. I don't know what it is, but they've never once touched that field. Uh, also, if you work in social media department at your work, I'm not talking about your work ethic. I'm just talking about the work ethic of people on social media teams in the NFL. <laughs> They're not playing, okay? But for some reason, they still get that ring. They benefit from the victory of other people. As I read through the scripture today, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 22. Man, I feel that same thing. Here we are, the week after Easter. Here we are. We're rolling off of a big weekend. Here we are. Jesus is victorious. Here we are, wearing his well-earned Super Bowl ring. And what did we do to earn that? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I am reminded of that, and I'm reminded of his victory and how every single day I live and I walk out of the victory of Jesus that I did absolutely nothing for. I wasn't even third string water boy. I wasn't even social media department for Jesus. But every single benefit of Jesus and his victory that was earned on the cross for me is something that I live out of. Today we're going to look at two different pictures of victory. The first is verses 13 through 17. Peter is wrapping up this idea that we live out of a victory that is much like the victory of King David. We'll unravel that. But also verses 18 through 22, we today as the church live out of the victory of Jesus. And so without any further ado, let's dive in. Verse 13 through 17 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you are taking notes this morning, follow with me. Our first point this morning is have no fear. 
in doing good. Verse 13 again, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I think so often we are so concerned about how we will suffer when we follow Jesus. We are so concerned about what other people can do to us, but what can other people really do to us? Here we are getting to the very end of, well, we are called to serve our husbands if they are not believers, if they are bad husbands. We are called to serve our employers even if they are, they are bad employers. We are called to serve and submit to our government even if it is a bad government, all with the exception of sin. We serve God as we serve other people until it comes to the point of sin. And Peter lets us know even when we do those things, even when we lovingly submit and serve Jesus and lovingly submit and serve to other people, we will still suffer ourselves. But don't fear. Don't fear. Do not let the fear of serving other people in the way that they will treat you, how they will certainly mistreat you. Don't let trials, don't let persecution, don't let anything get in the way of you serving other people because what can they actually do to you? Let's take it all the way to the worst thing they can do to you, and that is take your life. For the believer, what does that do? Death is victory for the believer. To live is Christ. To love and serve is Christ, but to die is gain. So if we are submitting ourselves to other people and we are serving other people, and it comes down to the absolutely worst possible situation, then we are still to go be with Jesus. They can do nothing to us. And then Peter says, if you're persecuted, then you'll be blessed. So we're not supposed to fear we're supposed to be blessed when we serve other people. So what does that mean for us as the church? Well, if we're not going to fear, we're going to continue to stand our ground, love, and serve other people. This means that we have to be brave. I did a little research on what bravery looks like this week. There is a Black Hawk Down Hall of Fame ranger by the name of Jeff Struker. This guy is, uh, he's a bad man. 20 years in the Army as a ranger. He got out from being a ranger. He became a chaplain, and all of his boys back in the Army Rangers started saying, Jeff, I don't know, man. You're getting real serious about this Jesus thing. I think you're getting a little soft. And so what Jeff did is he showed up to the Ranger Games that next year, and he is the first person and the only person in all of the history of the U.S. Army to go back into the Rangers Games as a chaplain and get Ranger of the Year. He said, boys, look, Jesus ain't making me softer. Jesus is making me sharper. If you saw the movie Black Hawk Down, this is one of the main characters right here. A man that has seen battle, that has seen bodies in the streets, that has put some bad guys away, but a man that loves and serves the Lord now as a pastor in Georgia. When he was asked about what bravery is, he said, bravery is facing your fears consistently until they don't phase you anymore. In this interview that I watched with Jeff Struker, he's talking about the first time he ever saw combat, the first time he was in a firefight, and it was the most he could do to just keep his bowels inside of his body. 
And it took somebody coming alongside him and putting their hand on his shoulder saying, Jeff, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to experience this. You're going to experience this. But it's okay. I'm right here with you. We're going to keep going. He said, from that point forward, it just got easier and easier and easier. Did it ever get less fearful? No. He always knew that his life was on the line. He always knew that that day could have been his last day. Up until that point, more people were lost in training in ranger school than they were and in training in prep for missions as they were in actual missions themselves. He knew at any point this could be the end. And it wasn't about not being scared. It was about continuing to face those fears over and over and over and over until they didn't phase you anymore. How do we take bravery like that and apply it to the church? Jeff did a great job when he was asked how you do this. He said, there's a lot of guys, and I'm not belittling military combat bravery by any means. If you are a person that comes from that in this room, you are one of my heroes, and I thank you for your service. But Jeff said, there are moments in the military where you are going into combat, where you make a decision, all right, I am going to go and possibly put my life in harm's way. I'm going to possibly die for this. When asked who his heroes were, he says, it's not the people who say, I'm going to go die for this. That is certainly bravery. But bravery, as you and I will experience outside of combat, is when we say, no, I will go and live for this. So how can we be brave as the church? We can submit ourselves to Jesus, and we can continue to submit ourselves to others. It takes bravery to submit yourself to Jesus. You never know what Jesus is going to call you into. Jesus may call you to teach at a school. Jesus may call you to move two states away, start a church. Jesus may call you on a mission trip to a foreign country across the world, and you never wanted to leave the United States. Following Jesus may mean that you start serving in a place that you are not comfortable serving in. Following Jesus may mean that you serve and love those around you, but you submit yourself to Jesus. And that means that you put your yes on the table for Jesus. And you say, whatever you want, Jesus, not whatever I want, because whatever I want has gotten me into this mess. And this is why I need forgiveness and restoration and to be restored and repurposed to get me out of. And so I'm putting my yes on the table for you. And whatever you say, that is what I am going to do. And so it takes bravery to submit yourself to Jesus. And if you are a believer that has any kind of experience and season about you, you have experience that you need bravery to follow Jesus. You certainly need bravery to, to follow, not follow, but serve and love other people. Everything that Peter has talked about is what if? What if these people are not worthy? What if these people do not take care of me? What if these people hurt me? That takes bravery. I think when it comes to bravery for the church, we are in one of the weirdest times in our culture. We are in one of the weirdest times of society in general. And it's going to take bravery if we are going to stand for truth. It's going to take bravery if we are going to stand for our convictions in the way that God has designed things. I think we can have this tendency and we can look back and we can say, man, I can, I can think about ancient civilizations, and I can just think about how dumber they were than we are. And I think for the first time in the history of the world, we might not be able to say those people were smarter than we are today. Today, we are still trying to figure out what makes up someone's gender. 
And when we go to the Bible, when we go to God's word, we see that it is male and that it is female. But if you say that, there's a possibility that you will get canceled if you say there are not infinite amount of genders that you can identify as. You can be canceled in a heartbeat by saying that marriage is between a man and a woman because that is the way that God has designed it. These are foundational truths of God's design in our lives that within the coming days, you could lose your job for. You could certainly, and you probably already have, you can lose your friends over. These are ideologies that are coming at our children. And it will take bravery, not just to stand up to it, but it will take bravery to protect your children from it. We have to know what we believe. The third thing I think, third place we can be brave as the church is just staying committed. Staying committed to Jesus. When Jeff Struker in this interview was asked who his heroes were, he says it's those who choose to live for something, not just die for something. It is the single mom who is making it happen for her children as the father has run away to do his own thing. It is the husband who may be in a marriage that is struggling and knows he can go off and he can find a quick little bit of happiness in another false relationship that is outside of his marriage. He can be unfaithful, but he chooses to remain true to his wife. He chooses to remain faithful in his marriage. He says his heroes are the women who married men who they thought were going to be the men of the house, but instead have turned out to be another child under their roof. It is the people that stay committed to Jesus first, and regardless of what situation they're in, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the marriage, whether it's in any other kind of friendship, serving other people, they submit first to Jesus. And out of the love that they have for Jesus and the love they receive from him, they submit to and serve other people. The second thing we see in the scripture this morning is we are to honor Christ as holy. We see this in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This means at our core. This means from the very inside of who we are in our DNA. We say that Jesus was the only perfect person that ever walked this planet. And then we set him as our example and we aim to be holy as he is holy a little bit more every single day. Why? Why is Jesus supposed to be at the innermost core of who we are, honored as holy? Because as this is written, it was never meant to stay inside. This is not meant to be this little light of mine. I'm going to keep it away from everybody else. I'm not going to let it shine. No, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I've got the good news of Jesus. I have the only perfect person who not only was the perfect person, but was the perfect sacrifice and gave their life for me. I am not just going to keep this in my heart. I'm going to let this permeate through my entire body. This will be my character. This will be who people talk about when they talk about me. This will be the thing that I am all about. Jesus is honored as holy on the inside of me so that Jesus will be honored as holy outside of me. And we see that in the rest of verse 15 when we are called to be steady, but to stay ready with a reason. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What Peter is saying is if you continue to endure the beatings of life around you, a boss that isn't fair, a marriage that isn't ideal, a government that you do not agree with, people will start asking questions. Think about it in marriage. They're just going to expect you to walk out. Think about it in your workplace. They're just going to expect you to quit, not to keep lovingly submitting yourself and serving other people. People will ask questions. Hey, man, why do you, why do you keep loving this guy? Why do you keep honoring this guy? Why don't you just cuss this guy out behind his back like the rest of us are doing. Hey, why don't you talk trash about your wife in the way that she treats you? Why don't you talk trash about your husband in the way that he treats you behind their back like the rest of us are doing as we gather together? Hopefully that's not you. They're going to ask questions. And when they ask questions, that's when you tell them, Jesus, stay ready with a reason. Stay ready with a defense. Tell them your story. Every single one of you in here that is in a relationship with Jesus, that relies on him to make you clean, to save you from your sin, and to put you in right relationship with God the Father through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, has a testimony. You have that story so that you can share that story. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you need to know absolutely everything about the Bible. I'm not saying that you need to know exactly what page to turn to when somebody hits you with this or that. I am saying you need to know the basics. You need to know the basics of the good news of Jesus. You need to know who saved you. You need to know how you're saved, and you need to know how he can save other people. And when people come to you saying, I can't believe you're still loving and serving in the way that you are. I can't believe you're not slandering this person based off how they treated you. That is when you hit them with the gospel. Everything that this boils down to all comes down to unbelievers becoming believers by the way that you have loved and served them, by the way that Jesus has loved and served you so that they can come into relationship with Jesus so that they can be loved and served by him and they can go love and serve other people. That is why we stay ready with a reason. Now Peter also says something else here. He knows you're going to be right and he knows what we do when we are right. What do we do when we're right? We turn into insufferable jerks. Just almost immediately, we weaponize being right, and we let other people know that they are wrong. Peter says, no, do not be a jerk about this. Be gentle. Go to them in love. Go to them with patience. And then verses 16 through 17, keep suffering for good, not for evil. And as you do, keep giving them Jesus. Now, we have to realize that all of this is based off of a reference to Psalm 34, which is all about David and how he was mistreated. And so what Peter is saying in all of this chunk of scripture here today is, hey, remember David. Remember the things that he went through under King Saul. Hey, you remember when the prophet Samuel told David he was actually supposed to be king and he had God's favor and God's favor was removed from Saul? Yeah, that's actually the way that he still treated Saul and he honored him. You're supposed to be that in the situations that you're in. 
as David's over in the corner, he's playing the harp, trying to cast these evil spirits out of King Saul, and King Saul gets a little upset. He picks up a spear, and he hurls it at him. What does King David do? Well, not yet, King David, young harpist David. Does he catch that bad boy out of the air and just rifle it back at him? That'd be sweet. But that's not what he did. He dodged the spear. What about when David's life is threatened? What does he do? He depends on God. He goes to God in prayer. He goes to God in psalm. And he still serves faithfully. What about when he had a chance to get back at King Saul, knowing that he was supposed to be the rightful king? God had told him he was supposed to be the rightful king. Prophet said, hey, you're supposed to be the rightful king. And Saul is in a cave. David's behind a rock, and he has a chance to take his life. The two times that David had to take his life, he gave him grace. He gave him mercy over and over again. And it is here where Peter shifts in his writing, and we go to the victory of Jesus himself. Verses 18 through 22, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as a removal of dirt from the body. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Fourth point this morning is that we are to remember Jesus's suffering as we suffer. Verse 18, we can see that suffering is not limited to us. And that is so hard for us to fathom, especially when we are going through a phase in life where circumstances are not ideal, where it seems like everyone is against us, where it seems like if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. It seems like we are suffering in a room full of mirrors and we can't see anyone outside of the range of those mirrors. All we can see is ourselves. I think as a church today, we tend to suffer with selfie sticks. We tend to suffer and only look out at our phone that is attached to this thing and say, you know what, this is just me. I am the only one that is going through this. We suffer with blinders. We suffer in isolation, not realizing that everyone else around us is suffering something as well. But Peter is not bringing attention to other people's suffering here. What is the example that Peter is setting? It is the suffering of Jesus, for Christ also suffered, just as you are, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You want to talk about fairness and suffering. This is the only unfair suffering that ever took place. He is the only righteous person, and he suffers on behalf of the unrighteous so that we can receive his righteousness. So suffering is not limited to us, and Jesus suffered the worst death imaginable for all the sin of the world, not just in that moment, but for all of time. As the only righteous person, and why did he do that? To bring us to God, to make us clean. There's a lot of hopelessness 
and suffering. And I think we can look at the suffering of Jesus and we can think, man, surely he had hope through it all. But I believe there was a moment where Jesus loses hope when he turns to the Father and he says, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus takes on the sin of the world for our behalf to die on the cross for it. And in this moment, the first time that the Father ever removes his gaze, ever removes his touch from the Lord because he is a perfect God and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And now Jesus, being the only one perfect, has now taken on the sin of the world. I think in that moment, Jesus felt what it felt like to be hopeless. But it wasn't over then. And we are living out of his victory now, which means that he died in the flesh and he was raised in the spirit. That means that he died a physical death and he rose in spiritual life. And it is only in Jesus that this life is offered. Which brings us to our fifth point this morning. Remember, Jesus' victory is your victory. Now, this gets us into some really hairy scripture. This gets us into some really tricky scripture. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther said, this is the most dangerous scripture in all of the New Testament to preach on. And he said, the things that it talks about, not even he understood. And I'm not going to pretend to be any smarter than him this morning, but I do think that we can glean from the scholars and the commentators and the authors of really big, expensive-smelling books as we approach this text. And we can take it back to what I believe Peter is talking about in its original context and how these people would have understood it. This is verses 19 through 20, in which he went, this is Jesus, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It says he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is Jesus after his crucifixion. This is Jesus resurrected. This is Jesus alive again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed. What did he proclaim? He proclaimed his victory. Who did he proclaim his victory to? This is where things get weird. We're going to get weird this morning. He proclaims his victory to the disobedient spirits in the days of Noah, if you go back to the beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, you will come into contact with these disobedient spirits. These are the fallen angels that it talks about. Angels fell from heaven as a mutiny, disobeying the Lord for something that they had done. They fall to earth. They see the daughters of man. They say, mm-mm, that is looking good over there. I want to go spend some time with her and her and her and her. And so they have some conjugal visits. They get to know each other very well. And then these daughters of men birth giants. The Bible calls them Nephilim, these men of renown, these legendary warrior type figures. These are the spirits that Jesus is preaching his victory to. It is these fallen angels, these watchers, as they put it in the extra-biblical book, the book of First Enoch. We're not going to get into all that. That's going to get just really hairy if we follow that rabbit trail. So where does this take place? Where is Jesus 
preaching his victory to these fallen, disobedient spirits. It's thought to be that this is Sheol, as it is known in the Old Testament, or Hades, as it is translated to in the Greek. Jesus is in a place of judgment, a place of pits of darkness, where he is basically taking his victory lap. Jesus is saying, hey, Devil, you thought you won. Hey, evil spirits of disobedience in the days of Noah, you thought you won. You did not win. Mission completed. This is in Top Gun where Maverick and Goose are they're coming back and they want to buzz the tower. And it says, no, you cannot buzz the tower. The orders have been given. And Jesus just goes and he buzzes the tower anyway. Guess what, suckers? You lost. You're done. You have no power anymore. All of you guys... Big bad guys ruling the earth, coming up with your own agenda, your own scheme from way back in the days of Noah. You thought you were going to win. No agenda that you have will ever reign true because the power of Jesus and his death and his victory over death and sin and the enemy on the cross now reigns. Mission complete. Tower buzz. Jesus was not writing checks that his ego couldn't cash or his ego wasn't writing checks that his body couldn't cash. He has been crucified and he has been resurrected. Jesus has won. Amen. Let's go. Buzz the tower. Verse 21, we get into a little bit more hairy situation where it talks about baptism now saves you. Now we can read this and say, what? I thought it was my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and my faith alone that saves me. Well, we have to take this into the proper context. Now, this is written to the first century church. Jesus just commissions these guys with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. Part of baptize, or making disciples is that you would have shared the gospel with somebody. That person would have given their life to Jesus. And it's not like today where we separate someone coming into being justified and coming into salvation, into a relationship with Jesus. And we separate that from baptism. When someone got baptized back in this time, it was an immediate thing. Hey, bro, you just got baptized? Or, hey, you just gave your life to Jesus? Let's, let's go swim and tell people about it, all right? Public proclamation of your faith. Let's get you baptized now. Baptism was never supposed to be, at least culturally back then, separated from salvation. It was an immediate action, and so this is a packaged deal. Also, we can look back to the reference to the parallel that Peter is drawing to the flood. We can look at salvation as going underwater, being surrounded like Noah and the eight righteous people, including himself on the boat, would have been by these waters that were going to take them out. We can look at going under the water for baptism as that and coming out of the water as being delivered by God's hand of provision through the ark as it was for Noah and his family. And what that represents for us is we are buried in life with Christ, or buried in death with Christ, raised to walk in a new kind of life. We are put under water that could kill us, but we are raised in the victory of Jesus' resurrection. We are still saved by the work of Jesus and the work of Jesus alone. There is nothing that we could do that would bring salvation for ourselves. We cannot earn it. It is something that has been given to us, which brings us to our sixth and final point this morning, and that is that everything now submits to Jesus. 
verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Think back with me the last seven, eight, nine weeks that we have gone through the letter of First Peter, especially chapter 3. Everything has been Make yourself subject to this. Make yourself subject to this. Submit yourself to that. Willingly, lovingly serve this person. Serve that person. Love this person. Serve that person. Submit, 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 subject, subject, subject. Now what this is saying is that everything, everything, all angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to Jesus. Now the tables have turned. We submit ourselves to Jesus, then we lovingly willingly submit and serve other people. Why? Because he is risen from the grave. Why? Because he reigns and he is in heaven at the right hand of God. Why? Because he is in control. What does that mean for us as the church? That means that there is power in the name of Jesus. That means that there is nothing to fear. That means that there is no dark, demonic, evil spirit, evil presence that will have any say over you if you belong in Jesus. But you have to belong to Jesus. If you want to experience his victory, you've got to be on the team. There was nothing that we could do to earn this Super Bowl ring. We are third string water boys, water girls. We are in that social media department of the king, and there is nothing that we have done to earn this, but yet we benefit from every ounce of the victory of Jesus on the cross when we find ourselves in right relationship with God through his work. That means you got to belong to Jesus. Maybe some of you in here today have questions about that. I would love to answer those questions. Maybe some of you in here today want to know what that looks like in your life. I would love to answer those questions. I know Jacob would as well. I know our prayer team would as well. Let's get that taken care of. Let's get you on the team. Let's get you benefiting from the victory of Jesus as he calls you into relationship with him. How do we take this scripture? How do we apply it to our lives today? How do we be the church and display the kingdom as we leave from this place? Verses 13 through 17, we see we do not fear man. Verses 18 through 22, we see that we do not fear the enemy. And if we put all of this together, this means that we do fear God. That doesn't mean that we tuck our tail and run away because we're scared of God. This means that we take him seriously with love and with respect. Jesus has won. Now it's time for us to go and have a defense. It's time for us to go and tell somebody. Let's pray.